I'm Michael Holly, and you're listening to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. Welcome to the Celtics Pride podcast on Celtics Blog. I'm Adam Motenko. With me, as always, my twin brother, Josh Motenko. That's right. And Mike Minkoff. Gentlemen, we are all back together again. It's been so long. It feels so good. I am so, I'm so obsessed with this team right now. I can't stop. I can't stop. Oh, my God. I know. I know. I know. Trust this is, me. This is embarrassing <laughs> for you. Today on the podcast. Clear, it is embarrassing for you. I am oh, hundred percent agree. You. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. I am not ashamed with my wishy-washy emotions about this season Celtics teams, and I have a feeling that uh, fans listening understand what I'm talking about today on the podcast. We're looking at the first three games since the All Star break: Brooklyn, Detroit wins, loss against the Pacers. We'll give our reactions to that. We want to dig into some of uh, some advanced metrics about how good this team is and what that means for what their potential is this season. Specifically focusing on the offense uh, and whether the, this team can can improve in that area. That has been the piece that has followed the defense in this season. And then we'll look ahead at a tough upcoming schedule in the next week. Let's start with recent games against Brooklyn, Detroit, the loss to the Pacers. Mike, let me throw it to you first. Reactions to those games? Well, I was at the at the end of the day. I mean, I'm happy we went two and three. We played three games and four nights uh, again. Two and a, one, yeah. A, uh, or, yeah, whatever. I, um, yeah. You know, we played against a depleted Brooklyn team. You know, they didn't have Kyrie. They didn't have because it was in Barclays and he still can't play at home in New York. Uh, they don't have Ben Simmons yet. KD is out with injury. So uh, we did what we were supposed to do and, and beat them handily, controlling the game from the outset. Nothing really to react, except I was happy to see that we didn't like, you know, we were we came out of the break and still blew out a team we should have blown out. That was good. Uh, we go into Detroit. Detroit has been playing just better than their record suggests in general after they beat us in the last game before All-Star break, which, again, Adam, you and I talked about that last week. I didn't think that was a big deal. It was the trappiest of trap games. We fell into the trap. Um, but then they also beat Cleveland coming out of the break. Uh, they gave us a game. They beat, um, was it Indianapolis, uh, Indiana? Um, they beat someone else in OT the next the next night. Oh, they just beat, I think, Charlotte or something. Uh, Kelly Olynyk with a game winner. So, you know, Detroit has been playing much better. Uh, um, Cade Cunningham, obviously, is a, a very, uh, very impressive prospect. Um, I probably would have taken Evan Mobley over him, uh, at least knowing what I know now, but... Uh, I think Detroit should be happy with Cade. They have Sadiq Bay, which will always sting me. Um, sorry, Neesmith. Uh, but we, we'd be better off if we had Sadiq. Anyway, so ultimately we, we ground that game out. We came out, came out with the win. And then we dropped. Can I, the can I pause you to, to talk about Detroit before yeah, going on sure. to Indiana? 
So I, I mean, that was a game, that Detroit game was a game that I think they lose earlier in the year, for sure. They're down at the end of the third and, and still with eight minutes remaining in the fourth. The momentum was not on their side. They're turning the ball over. Their energy was inconsistent throughout the lineup. Like some guys were playing well, some were not. Uh, Derek White, that was definitely his worst game of the year for the Celtics. He just looked completely out of sport, out of sorts, especially on offense, turning the ball over. He he had issues with his first step. He was not able to get past defenders. His body language wasn't looking great. I'm not sure what it was about. I mean, I, it's, I'm not making trying to blow this out of proportion. He has been great for this team so far and bounced back against Indiana. But it was just kind of an odd showing for him. Um, and Peyton Pritchard really put us over the top in that game. So I loved seeing that game because it was the kind of game that we lose earlier in the year, and we didn't this time. Plus, it, it spawned all the P-Rabbit, B-Rabbit comparisons of, you know, closing closing, oh, out, ba- closing out battles in Detroit. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry, Josh. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, that was also kind of a redemption game for us because we lost that game uh, before the All-Star break to them. What did you guys think of Cade Cunningham? Obviously, like, he's got ways to go defensively. But, I mean, what my, I guess my question should be, what did you think of my player comp for him coming out of the draft? Which was Jason Tatum? Do you think that's an appropriate player? No, I, no. I don't. I don't think that's the right comp. I mean, I don't. Kate is, uh, I think, a much more natural playmaker. Um, he was also different in the way he kind of got to and used the mid range. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I felt like it, he didn't. It didn't feel like he was stopping the ball quite as much as it it feels like with. Um, with Tatum's uh, inclinations, especially earlier in his, well, actually as a rookie, Tatum wasn't so bad at it. Uh, But so I thought, I thought Cade was a little bit more natural as a, as a playmaker and as a, you know, offensive hub and offensive creator. Um, But he's really good. He's really good. Uh, I I think Detroit's got uh, something to be happy about. I would be happy if he was on our team. And he does have a ways to go on defense. We picked on him the entire time. And I thought he got uh, some luck from the refs not calling some fouls. So, yeah, my player also, comps for him were, were Tatum or Penny Hardaway. What about the other one? I, mean, I don't like remember Penny's Penny game well enough, but but Penny makes some – I mean, I think Penny was a, a better – playmaker ultimately you know he was he was pretty special back in the day but uh and i think it was a little quicker right and and more flashier athletically but but i see that i see you know kind of right in between those two there there's something there because penny wasn't a great shooter Cade Cade has that mid-range down already um so yeah i think i think some combination of those two maybe maybe some of their worst traits (laughs) not, not all their best traits um, Detroit plays there. a lot better than their record, uh, and they have a number of players I like, including Cade. What they are is tough and strong, and and like we, I think we struggle with those teams. Do you guys agree with that? I felt like that was part of the issue with Indiana too. Somehow, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe that's. I right. I yeah. think the issues with Indiana were different. I mean, <clears throat> I think you know, I think Detroit is playing kind of classically like a team of young guys whose season is clearly over, but they're, they're showing that they're kind of, they're going to build something. They've got nothing to lose, everything to prove. And so they're kind of playing with an edge and a a chip on their shoulder. I think, you know, Cade and Sadiq are healthy. Grant is a good versatile defender and, and effective offensive player. And, 
you know, so they've got some some legit guys that that can play basketball, right? That they're like a real NBA team, despite what their record might suggest. Um, and I and I think they're just playing carefree because you know they they're so far out of it at this point, and they probably just you know uh, circled up and said we're just gonna try to be spoilers the rest of the way. Josh, any thoughts on Brooklyn? That was, I mean, a dominant win by the Celtics first game after after the break. No, I have no thoughts on Brooklyn. They didn't have any other true players out there. That is right. So then we get to Indiana. Mike, pick up where you left off. Yeah. So I mean, so we got drugged by Indiana, right? I, we we kind of made it close, um, but I thought this was a, a classic game of a you know third game in four nights, second second game on the, uh, of a back to back. We came out in the first half and did not have a defensive intensity to us. Let them kind of get comfortable, right? And it's that classic case of once they get comfortable, uh, then all of a sudden they, like the net looks like an ocean and they just can't miss. And then in the second half, every time we brought it, got close, right? We ramped up the defensive intensity. It got really chippy. Uh, Batadze put Brown on his back and, and Brown picked up a, a tech. Um, uh, and then they, you know, like uh, Buddy Heel just couldn't miss. Like that Halliburton couldn't miss with those like righty scoop layups from 15 feet to the right of the basket, just kind of arcing up and over and in. Uh, Buddy Heel putting it up from all over the place, long twos, deep threes, well contested to you know just bottom of the net. So um, we kind of we let them get comfortable and and then they took advantage and just hit everything in the second half. So, you know, I think the big, the, the only main takeaway I have that I think is relevant um, is that a don't undervalue what Al Horford brings to this team. Um, And relatedly, you know, I think it's pretty clear that Daniel Tice can't just directly swap in and substitute for that. Certainly not at this point in his Celtics tenure. Um, I, I think both on offense and I know Adam, you have some thoughts on this, but on offense, the way the zone affected us in the first half, I thought some of that could be attributed to not having someone like Horford help, help facilitate ball mm-hmm. movement and spacing and, and timing of actions. Um, and then defensively, I thought just the way Indy got so comfortable in the first half would have been offset to some degree by, by Horford had he been in there. Um, so, you know, I have some other thoughts there, but. But that that's my main reaction and takeaway. Yeah, Horford played a lot of minutes in the Detroit game and then was yeah, 37 out I think. against Indiana. Yeah. Is have I missed this? Is, has he been sitting on back-to-backs throughout the season? No, or? I think I think this was part of I mean, I think this is why we wanted to get Tice uh, so that we could theoretically have the luxury yeah. to do that. I don't I don't know. I'd have to look at the schedule. I don't know how many three game and four night stretches we've had. And that was three cities too, right? It, it, so that right. was at That's home right. in Boston. Then we traveled to Detroit. Then we traveled to Indy. So I, I, and I weird times they, of the games had, too. Yeah. Both like yeah. two afternoon games, which this team seems to struggle with. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I mean, Indy, what, what did you guys think about the Indy game? I mean, that to me was, and I said this on the Celtics blog Slack, that was a make-miss game to me. 52% from three for Indiana to 29 against the Celtics. And Indiana could just, they just could not miss. Um, what 
And I think if one of those was more normal, if the Celtics had hit high 30s from three or the Indiana had hit a normal 30-something percent or even 40% from three, I think we win that game. Like we, we the, the effort in terms of resilience to, to make a run and, and turn the tide in the third and fourth quarters was there, uh, even at the end of the second. Um, so that, then that is different from the beginning of the year. I found it interesting that Udoka came out in the press conference and said that the Celtics had a lack of physicality uh, in that game. I think, and maybe I think that's, that's what I was thinking about with the, with the struggling with tough, strong teams that I mentioned earlier. I, I think, well, in, I mean, so what was interesting about Indy, right? You can see what they're trying to do. They've got like, kind of like they've got Malcolm Brogdon and then they've got like a younger, better version of him and, or a, a will be better, better version of him, if not already in, in Tyrese Halliburton, right? These guys that are just well-rounded, level-headed, effective playmakers, efficient shooters from kind of multiple levels on the court, um, very interchangeable. Uh, then they've got like a, you know, shooter and, and Buddy Heald. They've got, what was his name? Brissert. Jacoby Brissett. Jacoby Brissett. O'Shea Brissett. O'Shea Brissett, who hit a, a, a career high six threes against us. Um, but he's big. I mean, he's big. He 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 played hard. They had Jalen Smith, who we were rumored to be interested in before the trade deadline. He hit some big shots. Um, I, I like I liked him. Uh, I'm a little sad that we didn't get him after watching him that game. Um, you know, so they, they've got all these shooters. They've got some interchangeability. It's a different team than what they were. You can see what they're trying to establish. And from a physicality standpoint, to Udoka's point, like to disrupt that, you have to be out pressuring the ball like at the start of the action. And we just were not. Mm-hmm. Like, especially in the first half, we were kind of on our heels. We were playing low on the action. They had they had space to kind of get into the heart of the defense and then get us in rotation. And then they were getting all sorts of easy baskets and like easy action. They had 66 points at the half, if I'm remembering right. You know, and it was just like, again, they got way too comfortable and then it was just way too easy for them. So um, I don't disagree with Udoka's assessment. I'm, I'm just not too concerned because it was the third game in four nights and because I think Al Horford's impact on our defense this season shouldn't go um, uh, under understated, underappreciated. He is, you know, again, we've talked about 538 and, and its flaws uh, of the projection system, 538's Raptor system. But Horford is listed as a top five defensive player um, in terms of defensive wins above replacement on, on 538 Raptor. So, you know, there are some some defensive metrics that are suggesting he's really, really impactful. And I think I think there's enough truth to that that it shouldn't be overlooked. And yeah, that is one of the things that makes Robert Williams so effective off the ball as this free safety is Horford's ability to play so well on the ball and and just be the be the backline of defense. Yeah, Mike, I think the points that you're making about how Indiana's building their roster, with a bunch of shooters around their two really solid point guards is, is kind of like, I think that says a lot about like where this team is going. And it felt like we kind of came into the game playing the team that we thought, you know, the team that had the record that is really bad this year. Um, so it was like, we, we wanted to play the, the bad Indiana Pacers team. And what we got was kind of a glimpse of the future with a ton of shooters. And uh, positionally, I didn't think we were, 
you know, doing that bad defensively. And I think that when you play a team that just hits a ton of shots, especially on a career night for a role player like O'Shea Brissett, that that will skew the numbers a little bit and it'll make us seem like we're not playing good defense. But I think it was more of an issue of them just hitting a lot of shots. I have two I, questions. Uh, one's a coaching question on offense and one's on defense. So Josh, you were saying that you didn't think they were out of position on defense. My understanding is that when you're switching everything, one of the things that it makes you susceptible to, and there's tremendous advantages for it, but one of the things that it makes you susceptible to is there's a split second between uh, when that switch is happening where uh, a player can can has an opening for a spot up three. And I'm wondering if... If you if that is if you agree with that and if that played a role in this Indiana game, um, I just think that all the threes that they were taking they were making. Like I didn't think that they got better shots because of our switching defense. I mean the the little the kind of pitch back pass is you know a little bit more difficult to switch, but it's not. I mean I, th- I felt like we were contesting all of their shots. It's not like we were giving up wide open threes. Um, does that answer your question? I think so. Mike, any reaction to that? No. Josh, do you like, do you think that that opens like switching opens a team up to a hot shooting team getting easier, slightly easier looks? No, I think a zone would do that, but I think that's just a switching man to man. Doesn't, I mean, you're supposed to come, you're supposed to come together on the switch. So like you're supposed to be able to touch or high five the guy that your teammate that you're switching with. And at higher levels of play, that's more difficult to do, especially when you have a, a shooting team. I think the switch opens up susceptibility to an open three or splitting the switch if you don't come together all the way. But I didn't feel like they were doing that on drives. Well, you mentioned the zone. That was my next question was the the difference in this game looked like the second quarter when Indiana took their lead and they went into a zone against the Celtics and the Celtics struggled with it. Um, and we've, we've talked about how that was a big challenge for them, especially early last year. And they've gotten a lot better at it, but they looked like they were really struggling with it uh, in the second quarter, partly because they weren't hitting their threes and they did get a lot of open looks, uh, but partly it was just kind of patience and passing. It seemed like to me. Well, they were already, the Pacers already had a lead going into the second quarter when they switched their D. The, the defense, the switching to a zone, I think, extended the lead. But it's not yeah. like, I mean, they were already hitting their shots and, and there was already a gap that we had to make up for. I don't, I'm not that as worried about the Celtics' offense against zones as I was last year. I think Tatum and Brown have gotten a lot better at that. I think we have better players to play in the middle now that we have Horford back. Smart's really good there. Tatum is better there. But White's think- really good, too. Exactly. Derek White is, is kind of a difference maker when it comes to being smart against different kinds of defenses. So I, I'm not as worried about that, but it definitely is something that teams will use against us more so in the playoffs too, because historically it's worked. Yeah. I still, I mean, I, I still think I, I go back to just don't, don't underrate Horford's absence in, yeah. in that particular case. Like, I, I think we are, especially at this point in Tice's kind of return, because he's still kind of learning this, for, you know, Udoka's version of of the Celtics, right? Like, he obviously knows the players, he's got familiarity, but 
you know, let's not forget it took the the team about three months to really master this defensive system and start showing progress on offense. I think Tice will be a quicker study because he's a bit more naturally inclined towards kind of team uh, team center, you know, team ball in effect, <laughs> not to kind of for lack of a more uh, flattering way to kind of frame it. Um, but I still think he, you know, he's only played what four or five games. If no, if that with the Celtics so far, um, I think he's going to need time to adjust. I, I would on, I would like kind of given what we saw uh, in the juxtaposition between Detroit and Indiana, I would like Udoka to, instead of, you know, playing Horford 37 minutes and then sitting him, I would, I would like Tice to kind of get more naturally woven in for like 10 or, or so minutes a game. Um with hopes that that can, you know, help keep Horford and Williams's minutes a little lower, uh, help integrate Tice a little more smoothly, um, and and minimize kind of disruptions like we saw, in my opinion, due to Horford's absence against Indiana. Okay, let's talk about how this team is looking in terms of advanced metrics uh, and what that means for how far they might be able to advance. Um, there was a recent podcast on, I want to say Saturday, um, by the athletic NBA show, um, Andrew Schlecht and Alex Spears discussed conference finals candidates. And they did some really interesting research on going back 10 years, what the offensive rating, defensive rating, and net rating were for all of the teams that made the conference finalists. Uh, and Mike, before we go on with that, can I ask you to give a quick rundown on what offensive, defensive, and net rating is. Yeah, so it's it's effectively the points scored or points allowed per 100 possessions. And the you know offensive rating is the points scored per 100 possessions. Defensive rating is the points allowed per 100 possessions. Net rating is the difference between the two. Um, so let me yeah, yeah let me give ahead. you a no, um, uh, a quick overview of what they shared of what the research was, and then we can talk about how this relates to the Celtics. So basically what they found was that of the teams that made the conference finals, uh, that the average team was fourth in net rating, sixth in offensive rating, and eighth in defensive rating. So slightly better on offense than defense, but around a top four team. Uh, and that there were a few outliers, um, the outliers on the offensive side of things, the ones that didn't have a better offense than defense or one of the top, one of the top offensive teams in the year actually included five teams, um, all of which were either number one or two in defensive rating and typically had about a middle of the pack offensive rating. Two of those teams were actually Celtics teams, the 2012 and 2018 Celtics, both of whom were number two in defensive rating that year. Uh, and then there were some outliers. Or 2012 and 2018. Oh, cool. And then the outliers on the other side of things where they were um, not as good offensively I'm sorry, not as good defensively, actually were a little wonkier uh, in that um, they, were, they ended up including a bunch of teams that did not make the finals and then a bunch of LeBron teams who kind of take the, the uh, foot off the gas in the regular season and then ramp like up. That. And so they ended 16, a lot of them. 16-17 Cavs team. Yeah. Um, so that, that was interesting, but, but kind of outlierish to me. 
Um, and then they looked at teams this year and they said, okay, so based on this fourth in net rating, sixth in offensive rating, eighth in defensive rating as averages going back 10 years, which teams this year should be on the list that we expect to make the conference finals. And they've got Phoenix and Golden State, which makes total sense. Um, they've got um, Milwaukee, Philly, and then Brooklyn is a question mark because, I mean, Brooklyn's in the middle of the pack. They're not, they don't look like a good team now, but obviously if, they, if they're healthy uh, and available, then that team should look completely differently. And then there's the question of, do the Celtics fit into that? Does Chicago fit into that? Um, does, uh, uh, who's the other team that should be uh, included at the top of the standings? The Heat. Does Miami uh, fit into that? Boston is, um, what, are, what are they, Eight, 18th in offensive rating, uh, second in defensive rating on the season, and fourth in net rating. So they fit into that top four teams in net rating, and, and they fit into that outlier category of teams that are like one or two in defense and middle of the pack in offense. And, uh, and Mike, maybe I can turn it over to you now. They have been dramatically improved, as we've talked about on this podcast, since the beginning of, of January. They're the uh, ninth in offensive rating, number one in defense, and number one in overall net rating. Yeah, so since just you know to go back on the on the season as a whole, their offensive rating is 110.7. Uh, as you noted, Adam, that's 18th overall. Um, so you know, not not too impressive uh, in the grand scheme of things. But since December 31st, uh, which is you know when they had that impressive win against Phoenix um, to to close out 2021. Uh, that the Celtics have played 28 games or 20 and eight over that span. They have the ninth um, best offensive rating in the league. Uh, their offensive rating over that stretch is 114.4. Um, so, uh, you know, a uh, little more than three and a half points improved relative to the overall season average um, in February, where the Celtics went kind of gangbusters and went 10 and two um, uh, for the month. Uh, the their offensive rating is still ninth overall, but it, it increased even more to 116.5. Um, you know, the Celtics since December 31st um, and in the month of February, both uh, have had the best defensive rating in that stretch and, and the top um, net rating, I believe. Uh, certainly in February, um, since December 31st, it's top one or two. Um, so, I mean, the real question ultimately as i see it adam with you know and and that's a really interesting framing and from from the um athletic nba show is like do we believe that this kind of ninth rate rated offense since december 31st is real in that the celtics would play more or less to that level in in the playoffs against playoff competition um for me uh, the answer is I'm not convinced yet, right? I think if we felt confident that the Celtics would be at least a top 10 level offense uh, in the postseason, we might be pretty bullish on them being, you know, matching up with basically what like, you know, 538 Raptor projections or ESPN's basketball uh, power index or whatever it stands for say, which is that the Celtics are like the most likely team to win the finals right now. And I do not feel that way. 
despite being a Celtics homer, right? Like, so, so I think that boils down because I do believe in the, in the defense. I believe that's pretty, pretty freaking real. Um, That boils down to me not believing that we're really the ninth best offense. And there's, there's a lot of kind of reasons to be skeptical or, or concerned there. There's also some some possible reasons for hope. I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think about the, how real the Celtics offense is? Well, I think what these stats are showing us is is kind of evidence that defense no longer wins championships. You know, that was an adage I think that used to be true in the NBA and across a lot of levels of basketball. And I don't think it's any longer the case. I think the Warriors dynasty kind of blew that out of the but, water. But they were but they were top defense all of those years. They were like a, a number one or number two, or like I think the lowest defensive rate, like rating they had in the NBA was like fourth during that no, whole run. Because their rebounding numbers dropped their defensive rating during one of those years, at least. I think the year that they lost KD. Um, but they're, you know, what they did prove is that their offensive explosions were just unmatchable by any kind of defense. And like, if you were to put this year's Celtics defense up against any of the championship teams from the last several years, I think you'd see a lot of difficulty for this Celtics defense to defend those teams, um, especially the ones that have kind of high-powered, high-octane offenses. And I think that it, it, it will help you win games. You know, being the first the top-ranked defensive team, I think, is going to help you get through certain rounds of the playoffs. But when it's all said and done, I don't think it equals championships. I think that you have to have an offense that is also high-octane um, to be able to compete with, with those other teams. And I don't think the Celtics have that this year. And I think that that, that these stats kind of show that, right? Um, that well, we're not talking that, championship. We're talking conference finals. Yeah. I think so we I, all agree they're not, they're not winning the championship and probably not getting to it. Well, right. so just, just as a quick, so like last year, for example, to Josh's point, the top two de- defensive rating teams in the league were, or the top three, the Lakers, the Sixers, 76ers, and the, the Jazz. I don't believe any of them made the conference finals. Um, the the teams that made the finals, the Phoenix Suns and the Milwaukee Bucks, were third and fourth in the league in net rating. Uh, but neither of them, Phoenix was had the sixth sixth best defense. Milwaukee had the ninth best defense. Um, they had the f- Milwaukee had the fifth best offense and the seventh best, and and Phoenix had the seventh best offense. So um, they were both more potent offensively, not quite as strong defensively. So you know I, that's obviously just a single season, but it, it does kind of align, Josh, with what you're what you're highlighting there. Yeah, we which is basically in short, you'd rather be the number one offense than the number one defense, right? Well, I, I don't know, because I think Portland has been the number one offense or up there in recent years. Yeah, like they were number two last as, year. As long um, as you're as long as the other side of the ball is also in like, you know, top top ten. Right. Sure. I guess I guess if you want if you have both within the top ten, you'd probably rather it, it seems recent recent history suggests maybe having a, you know, the offense slightly ahead of the defense will will help you fare better. Um, and I think, I think there's a lot of reason, again, like the Celtics offense, there's not a lot of reliable, efficient go-tos. Jason Tatum continues to shoot way below his, 
historic averages um, in three pointers. You know, he's shooting like 32% on the year. Last year, he shot 38% on his career. He's like 38.8% three-point shooter. Um, the good news is that he's got a better shot profile than he's had historically. Um, 41% of his shots are from three, which would be great if he was shooting 39%. It's not so good while he's shooting 32%. Um, you know, we, we don't... He, he still is in isolation a lot. He's like a, in the 54th percentile as an ISO scorer. Um, Marcus Smart is really ineffective as a pick and roll ball handler uh, as far as point generation. Uh, Jason Tatum is not all that much better. Um, you know, uh, there's, there's just no like offensive play that we run, offensive set we run that's like, oh yeah, this is a way to get sure points you know and and josh and you've been demar DeRozan's biggest fan certainly on this podcast um for a long time like he's a guy right you can just give him the ball and this season whether it's a long two whether it's taking it to the hoop and, and getting a foul he's he's just like points on the board tatum's our closest proxy to that but he's not nearly as efficient or effective as a guy like like that and and we just don't have a reliable offensive action that we can definitely count on when, when things get really tight in the postseason, And I think that, you know, that's the, there's no reason for us to believe that has shifted despite the recent strong play from the team. So the, we've been opening up games the last three games in a row, we've opened up with a lob to Rob Williams. Yeah. I and, that. and I think that that's, so there's like, okay, that that's a trend. The second and third player of the game, um, we've been setting a, a walkaway screen, like a, on the, the weak side of the ball for, like Rob Williams has been setting that screen for either Tatum or Brown to curl off of it, catch the pass, and then throw the lob right up to Rob. So we're kind of looking for that to start the game. I think going inside, starting the game going inside is something that a lot of dominant teams with dominant big men have done throughout NBA history. Um, not that we have that, but the fact that we're showing that kind of a pattern looking to go inside out to start the games, at least from you know, from the one advantage that we have, which is over the top of the defense to our time award, that that to me is an interesting pattern that I'm watching. And I see that as kind of a, a positive trend that other good teams have done. Um, and so to me, that shows smarts from our coaching staff and from our players on the court. I think part of it has to do with the recent trades and roster moves that Brad Stevens has made has increased the average age of our team. The top nine guys on our team are 26 years of age on average. And going into the season or last season, we were only 24. So you guys made a big deal about that early in the season. Yeah. Like what, how much can we realistically think that this team is a championship contender if we're as young as we are? You know, 24 years old puts you in the bottom third of the league or the younger third of the league and 26 years old puts you, you know, right, right near the top of the league in terms of um, age. If you look at the oldest teams in the league, it's the Lakers, Nets, Heat, Jazz, Bucks, Warriors, Suns. So in that order, uh, at least when the season started. So that kind of shows you there's contenders who are older. And I think that's another piece of this when we're looking at how good is our defense, how good is our offense, are the metrics truly showing how good we are? I think just 
poise and savvy comes from having older guys out there or at least guys who are in the middle of their prime. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think that's a huge point again, you know, when it comes to the fact that we have to and should rely on Tatum and Brown as our primary, you know, offensive creators, um, there are, is Tatum still 23. He's about to turn 24 if he hasn't yet. Um, yeah. Jalen is 25. Um, you know, just again, just a point of contrast, right? Like Milwaukee just won the championship last year with Giannis, who was like preternaturally a two-time MVP by the time he was 26, but he was a two-time MVP and he didn't win his first championship until he was 26. And he's just way better than Jason Tatum is. <laughs> like, um, it's really hard to win a championship in the NBA. There are uh, Jason Tatum has to go. He has to. He has to become a much more uh, efficient offensive player um, than he has. He has to d- develop increasing uh, levels of poise and, and improve decision making. So does Jalen Brown, who still coughs the ball up. I think a, a bit irresponsibly at times with his increased playmaking duties, like they just have to keep growing. And that, you know, I, I think the way the rest of the season plays out will be really telling and informative of whether like we're right in the mix next, as soon as next year, or if next year's like when we're making a deep run that gets to the Eastern conference finals, put someone on their heels. And then the year after that might be the year when we're really in the championship con- conversation. Um, and I think the pace at which we can kind of really show increased poise and improved decision-making and, and effectiveness in kind of, you know, those, those high leverage moments that, that will come down the stretch and in the playoffs, um, that's going to be really important as far as, you know, those types of reps for Tatum and Brown in particular, uh, as we're trying, as they're trying to elevate to the, the stature of player they'll need to be for the Celtics to be able to win a championship with their as with them as our lead offensive guys. The Celtics showed a lot of improvement throughout the year so far on defense and, and I would say on offense as well, is there more room in 19 games to make another small leap from number nine to number six in offensive rating? I think so. I think, though, what you're going to see is, you know, we just went on a huge winning streak and um, we still have some, I think, tendencies that we've seen sneak out in the Detroit and the Pacers game um, that are kind of remind us of the old Celtics of the first half of the year. And so I think while we're trending in the right direction, uh, having tempered expectations, I think, is important because most likely we're going to regress to the mean a little bit, despite, you know, all the progress we've made. I think it shows really great signs, and, and re, but we would really need a huge leap, I think, mentally from Tatum and Brown to be able to make noise in the playoffs. I think that leap can be made just with Tatum getting on a hot streak, which he hasn't really had all year and normally does around you know second half of the year. Um, I want to see continued pro- progression with Tatum and Brown as playmakers. Uh, and the thing that I'm really watching for is turnovers. This is the 23rd worst team in the league in turnovers. They haven't really improved much um, in, in during this winning streak from previous. And um, that you can't be a team that has two offensive stars and not three that is as young as they are 
and, uh, and, and has as slow of a pace as they do and turn the ball over as much as they do. If they're protecting the ball, I think that could bump it well, up. Well, you can be if your timeline to win a championship is not this year. Yes. yes. <laughs> and be a legitimate finals contender or even conference uh, conference finals contender. I would right. Say. And, and I, I think, you know, I, I, I think Brad Stevens had enough kind of comments at the margins and, and, you know, after the trade deadline and the way he described the moves that were made, um, that made, that, that made it clear to me that right there, they're not looking at the moves to get Derek White and, and Daniel Tice as moves to put them over the edge and win the championship this year, right? They're looking at them as moves that create, give them like a seven to eight man core that can stay pretty uh, continuous and together over uh, maybe two or three season timeline that will nurture the the needed growth of right. Tatum and Brown so that they can they can be let you know turn the ball over less be more effective as playmakers shoot with even greater efficiency make the right decision you know hit those singles more frequently than they currently do and it it shouldn't go unmentioned that like Tatum's playmaking at least at times even in the last few games has been really amazing like I think was it against um, Detroit in the first quarter? He had five assists. Now, granted, I think he finished that game with six assists, which wasn't awesome. But he was uh, he was really dishing <laughs> in that first quarter. <laughs> so it's well, it's in him. Um, but that growth is is doing it, just doing it and doing it and doing it, even when it's kind of boring, right? It's yeah. like this is too easy. This is I want to be a little flashy. I want to I want to get some shine. It's like sometimes you know. Being being an elite winning player is not about doing the flashy. Well, Jalen Brown led the team in assists two of the last three games. He had eight against Indiana and six against Brooklyn. And that, Mike, that's why that I keep Jalen. That's why I keep harping on conference finals for this year. As uh, Cedric Maxwell came out and said, that's the ceiling for this team this year. All right, if you are a uh, one of these Celtics pessimists who believes that this win streak is an aberration because they have not been playing good teams, and I, you have a fair point, you've got three upcoming games here that um, should be a much tougher matchup and test for the Celtics team. Uh, the Celtics are playing Atlanta, then they are playing Memphis, and then Brooklyn, and that Brooklyn team is coming to Boston, so Kyrie should be playing in that game. Uh, KD's a maybe, and I think Ben Simmons, we, we just don't know. What are you guys expecting in those games, Josh? Starting tonight, we got Atlanta, and that's a big redemption game for the Celtics after losing to Atlanta in the last game that we played them. Um, John Collins and Trey Young really killed us in that game, and I think that we are a different team this time around. And so I'm really curious to see what happens uh, against Atlanta. It's always fun watching Trey Young come to town. And just to have these three games at home, I think, is going to help us settle down a little bit, too, after this Pacers loss. Mike, do you have any comments about Atlanta? Um, about Atlanta, not no major ones. I mean, it. you know, we did a really good job bef- um, before the break against elite uh, bigs, you know, Denver and then, and then Joel Embiid. We were able to kind of contain both of them. Uh, this week is exciting because we're we're going to be playing against two of the best offensive point guards in the league, 
So it's always fun going up against uh, Trey Young and seeing how we handle that. I think we often put Tatum on him and length can disrupt him a, a bit more than, um, you know, trying to get a guy. I and mean, we don't really have like, I don't, I don't even know, Avery Bradley type defender who's kind of smaller and quicker and, and used to chase around guards like a, um, a Trey Young. But it'll be, it'll be fun to see how effective our defense is against kind of some smaller uh, offensive dynamos this week. Yeah, you're looking forward to that second game, huh? You won. I, I, I was trying not to skip ahead, but I am so excited about our game against Memphis. Uh, John ja Morant is, I mean, is there a debate as to whether or not he's the most exciting player in the NBA? And truthfully, I haven't watched too much of his, his games um, because, you know, I'm a Celtics homer first and foremost. That's where the majority of my attention uh, lay. So I, I am really excited to, uh, to see how we match up against them. I love how brash that whole Memphis Grizzlies team is. Um, uh, and I'm just excited to watch John Morant. I, I, I think it's awesome that TNT kind of flexed it to the national national TV game yeah. uh, for the night. I, I, it'll just be fun all around. Yeah, John Morant, is, he's taken over Marcus Smart's spot in my heart as my favorite player in the entire league. Wow. He's absolutely the, the, the most fun player to watch. And for those of you who, are, like Mike Minkoff, are just Celtics homers and don't get a chance to watch a lot of other games, the Memphis Grizzlies, you know, try to watch a few of their games. And if not, then just watch the John Morant highlights from the last two weeks, three weeks. I mean, you'll see. I do those, and I can never, I can never, I, I never cease to be amazed at, at how long he keeps going up. It doesn't ever make sense. It's just like he's just, uh, there's no gravity when he's jumping. It's insane. There's two plays he made in the last couple of weeks that I've never seen before on an NBA floor. Obviously, the, the one that caught a ton of attention a couple of weeks ago was the two-handed block that he got. Um, so, I mean, anytime you got a guy that jumping was against, to block That was a shot, against the Lakers, against the aforementioned yeah. uh, Avery Bradley. <laughs> anytime you see someone, a shot blocker, like grab the ball out of the air or block it with both hands, it's amazing. But when you have a 6-1 guard doing that, it's it's just... Like ridiculous. above the square on the backboard, the it was ridiculous. <laughs> and then the other play that made me gasp out loud and say some other words that I can't say on this podcast were he grabbed the pass as he was cutting to the hoop and jumped into a spin move in the air, like spun around in the air to lay it up around the defender. Uh, a 360 layup, basically, just off of a cut. Just incredible stuff. Like, just watch the highlights, please. Um, and, and that game... It's coming up Thursday. We got to make sure that the Celtics team isn't looking ahead to that game and, and uh, overlooking Atlanta first, like we may be doing on the pod here. Um, and then obviously we get to see Desmond Bain, uh, who's just playing lights out. His facilitation skills have impressed me more than anything else from the the guy that I saw at draft time uh, last year or two years ago. So he, he's just a secondary ball handler that, that really keeps the engine going there. And I think it's quickly become their second best player, uh, depending on what you think of um, Jaron Jackson Jr. All three games are on national television. Does that matter to the players, Josh? Uh, I think it does. It's a lot of attention. I think those guys like that. Um, with well, then no they better ben be getting Simmons, up for each one. Yeah, no Ben Simmons in the in the Brooklyn game. He's still out with back spasms as he's trying to ramp back up to to play again. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious how long he's going to be out for. KD 
Kevin Durant is a maybe for that game. Yeah, Nash um, Nash said uh, he's hopeful that KD will either play Thursday, I, I forget who Brooklyn's playing then, or uh, over the weekend against us. Um, so not definite, but but they're talking about KD coming back. So if we're playing a you know a Nets team with KD and Kyrie, it's going to be a whole different ball game than than what we saw against the Nets uh, just just last week. It's always exciting okay. to see KD or sorry to sorry to, to see Kit, to see Kyrie return to Boston too. And I think uh, it's just another chance for the fans to to express themselves. It, yeah, exactly. Wait, is this the first time we've had full attendance when he's returned? I don't think so. I thought the last one was is, the the Patchouli game or whatever. The Patchouli game, this when he burned the sage. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, but, I think and that, that was, was not it, full it's attendance. Possible. It's possible. <laughs> This might this might be the first time he gets a a full serenading. It feels like they they he may be serenaded like the first few times that we have full attendance when he returns. Uh, I I think he get he earned himself lifetime serenades. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. serenade for life. <laughs> All right, final comment, Boston. I, I, my understanding is that when you're listening to this today, Tuesday, March 1st is the last day to sign players to fill out your roster and have them be eligible for the playoffs. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's at like five people, what time during the day, or if it was by the day, but uh, at the end of today, Boston's roster will be finalized uh, at the end of the bench. They signed uh, Matt Ryan, not as, the quarterback. As, as far specifically, as far as playoff eligible players. Yeah. I mean, we've got three open roster spots. Matt Ryan was signed to a, a two-day, uh, uh, sorry, a two-way uh, agreement. He's a shooter out of Vanderbilt, and that's kind of it. Um, and uh, you know, M- Mike, you and I have talked about uh, multiple players on this podcast the last two times uh, that we'd like to see them get. It does not look like they're going after any of the larger names or able yeah, to get think, them. And some of them got, are not getting released from their teams. We got Fit, and we got—I I don't even remember the name. I, I have a feeling those are the guys. We're just going to sign them the rest of the way. And call it a day. Brad yeah, Stevens yeah, likes to get his work in early and 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 uh, get out, spend time with the family. I respect it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just happy that we have optimistic Adam uh, back on the podcast here. You know, he was so out on the Celtics for now. This for year. now, well, we, we got like... Adam, John, Kerry, Matenko here. So, uh... <laughs> yeah, Adam was so out on the Celtics earlier this year. I showed him a YouTube clip of Jack Sickman, and he thought it was Larry Bird. It was bad. <laughs> Wow. Nobody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> Jack who? I mean, I know. And I would never mistake those two. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Follow us on Twitter at Celtics Pride Pod. Individually at Mike Minkoff MBA and at Coach Motenko. For Josh, I am not on Twitter. Thanks again for listening. You are a part of Celtics Pride on Celtics Blog. <laughs>